and gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? Dear listeners, this is Jonah Gover, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. I had an eventful weekend. If I sound hoarse, um, it's because I'm hoarse. And uh, more about that anon, or maybe not, since it was all off the record. Who knows? It's a mystery. It's a, it's a, it's a conundrum wrapped in a riddle, wrapped in an enigma. Uh, regardless, I'm very excited to have uh, on today's show uh, literally one of my oldest friends, um, and I don't mean that in terms of like he's like 80 or anything. I've just known him for a long time. Uh, he's been on quite a few times before. He's a historian, uh, author of many uh, important uh, books bound in Corinthian leather. Um, and he's a professor at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Uh, it's my friend Vin Canato. Vin, welcome back to The Remnant. Hey, Jonah. Nice. Thanks for having me. I should, I should, I should do better about promoting. You wrote The, the Ungovernable City by, by, about John Lindsay. You wrote, what was the title of the Ellis Island book? Uh, it's called American Passage. History American of Ellis Passage. Island. And you yeah, got a new Ellis, one coming out at some point? Some point, yes. It's called, or it should be called Powerhouse. It's the biography of uh, the most kind of powerful Catholic archbishop uh, in history, a guy named Francis Cardinal Spellman, who was uh, involved in just about everything in the mid-20th century. He was a chaplain of the American Cold War. Are you... um? At the stage of book writing where it really should be called Albatross because it's just it's just an undue burden. Yep. I got half of it. I was on leave last year, thankfully, um, and I got half of it written. But now I'm back and, and it's, yeah, it's an albatross. Uh, I'm just trying to find time. I am going to Rome in May as long as COVID doesn't go crazy over there. I'm heading over to the Vatican to do some research. Very nice. Um, all right. So uh, one of the reasons I want to have you on is that I... I uh, I thought it would be a good point to departure was that um, I was listening to my friends on the editor's podcast over at National Review, and um, they took this issue sufficiently seriously that I thought I would start taking it more seriously. Um, there's a lot of, you see a lot of complaints um, out there about Russophobia in America, and I, I absolutely think that there are some examples of really stupid things, right? You know, like, it, don't stop teaching Dostoevsky, you know, like that's idiotic. Um, don't break the windows of Russian restaurants. Don't break the windows of any restaurants. Right. I mean, um, uh, but then there are these other things like, uh, sort of canceling relationships. And a lot of this is happening in Europe and people sort of do this thing that social media encourages, which, which is like, when things are going bad in Europe, they make it sound like it's happening here when it's really not. Um, but still, you know, cutting off, you know, uh, con cutting contracts with Russians, you know, opera singers and all of these kinds of things. I have I've mixed feelings about some of it. Again, uh, stupidity has no defense. You know, uh, bigotry has no defense. Breaking windows has no defense. But cutting cultural ties, I'm a little more sympathetic to. Um but a lot of people, I keep hearing people compare this to previous moments of, of war hysteria in the United States. And I just, I just, I don't feel it. I don't see it. Um, I'm not saying there aren't examples that you can't get a column or an article out of, but in terms of like real trends of hate crimes and, and, and that kind of thing, it just doesn't feel like anything like 
the examples that some people are tying it to in the past. So I was just wondering where that's where I come from on this. Where do you come from on all this? Yeah, I think that's right. Um, I in World War II, World War One and World War Two, these are the great examples of Americans kind of scrubbing German Germanism or Germanness out of America. Um, you know, World War One was the really great example. It's it, it really we forget how German America was and in some ways still is. I think I I always say this and I think it's still true that German is the largest nation based ethnic group in the country Hmm. and to us in the East, maybe that doesn't seem, but if you're in the Midwest, yeah, it seems pretty obvious, but world war one, I had the number in the Ellis Island book before world war one, there were something like 700 German language newspapers. Five years later, there was down to like a hundred, something like that. Uh, so, yeah. But on the other hand, like in World War II, you know, I don't think uh, New York City was welcoming a lot of, you know, Nazi conductors or Nazi actors. Uh, right. They certainly, but they had German actors and German musicians coming in. But if, I think if you were an active Nazi, yes, you weren't, not only weren't you welcome, you'd be in prison as an enemy alien. So, um, yeah, I don't, I don't see a lot of the Russian stuff. I, I well, what I do see is a kind of virtue signaling, you know, that, that mm-hmm. I think Americans want to do something. There's a sense, you know, you want to put a Ukrainian flag on your social media photo. Oh, and you can also, you know, yell about the Russians or say, I'm not going to buy this Russian thing, or I'm not going to play Tchaikovsky. That's just sort of a way that Americans increasingly want to do these kinds of symbolic things that make them feel like they're actually helping the situation. Yeah, and I, I think, and I think that's sort of part of the problem, right? Is like the sort of there's a confusion between a lot of dumb stuff on social media and real life, and so like during World War One, you had mobs, you know, beating Germans, stripping them of their clothes, setting fire to their establishments, uh, s- destroying their stores. Um, uh, it was banned across the country to teach German in lots of places. Um, uh, all German books public schools, public yeah, schools, public that, schools yeah. taught. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, and the, the ex- there was internments of Germans. I mean, it was, it was a big deal. And, um, the virtual virtue or vice signaling on, I mean, I, it's, I guess my point is that, like, it seems to me that normally this distinction historically this di- distinction between a regime and its people is kind of hard to sustain but so far it feels to me like a lot of people are bending over backwards to say this isn't about the russian people the russian people don't know about this uh don't hold this against the russian people they're being lied to this is really about putin and his regime and the i mean the loudest voices of the sort of oh this is all war hysteria stuff I mean, it's not the NR guys. It's, it's, it's the, the sort of the people who had bet on Putin being their new dashboard saint. And now, you know, like, you know, Roger is a friend like Rod, but like he's constantly warning against believing Ukrainian propaganda and doesn't really seem to have any such compunction about believing Russian propaganda. People like Tucker Carlson, who basically is becoming Russian propaganda. And it feels to me like the, a lot of the, you know, the anti-Russian backlash stuff is pretty similar to the anti-Muslim backlash stuff after 9-11. There wasn't nearly as much as the media obsessed with. And this time it's just the sort of the, the, the sort of nationalist conservatives who are playing the same card that, say, the New York Times was playing in the early 2000s. 
But, but here's the difference. In World War One and World War II, Germans were actually shooting at Americans and killing Americans, right? So it's understandable if uh, wrong, but one can understand if people in, the, in America were maybe upset with Germans and didn't like Germans. But no Russian is shooting at Americans here. This is not, you know, so I don't think that that's why it's, all, it's mostly at the symbolic level at that. The other problem is that the Russians we have in this country, right, most, most Russians here, Russian-Americans, are not pro-Putin. Uh, and in fact, most of them are actually Jewish, right? And, yeah. and they're not actually, many of them are not actually even Russian. There are a lot of Ukrainians from other parts of the, the Russian empire. Uh, so, uh, so yeah. And wasn't, you mentioned the, the Russian house in, in D.C. Isn't it not even owned by Russians? I think that's I right. Remember. Yeah, yeah. That was, so yeah, you know, I think we have to be careful. Like war hysteria, you know, we're not at war. And we shouldn't be at war. We should help the Ukrainians in, in however we can in terms of covert action, intelligence, and whatever we're doing. But we're not at war with Russia, and uh, so I don't think you're—I don't, I don't think you're seeing that. You're just seeing a lot of people who are—they um, want. The other thing is, people want to find an enemy, and, and mm. Russia makes a pretty good enemy. Yeah. Right. Um, even during the the Cold War, you know, it was Russia. We were not. We were against the Soviet Union, obviously, and there were some portrayals of, of Russian agents and James Bond and other places. But there wasn't a whole lot of Russia Russophobia during the Cold War domestically. Uh, there weren't witch hunts against Russians. Russian language was taught. It was taught because people thought it was important that that especially college educated people learned Russian so that they can understand Russia. Uh, you didn't see that during the Cold. So, so it's funny. I, I just wrote this column. I've written versions of it in the past. I have no problem. You know, there's a difference between a, the Cold War with capital C, capital W, and a Cold War, which is just basically a time of extremely heightened tensions, geopolitical rivalry, but not actual open combat between the two sides, right? And um, the term Cold War goes way back, although in the modern usage, uh, basically Orwell coins it. Uh, coins it, but. Um, I worry that like people who say it's time for a new cold war with Russia or China um, or both. If you use that term, you're going to smuggle in all sorts of bad analogies from that period, like things that just simply don't apply. And so when you, you make the point about, about Russia, there wasn't a lot of Russophobia. One of the great advantages we had in the cultural campaign against the Soviet Union in the and during the Cold War, is that it's particularly like the 1950s and 1960s, is that the Soviet Union denied its own Russianness, right? It tried to, I mean, obviously it was a lie, and they had all sorts of favoritism for Russians in, in the Soviet Union, but at the level of propaganda, we're all one people, we don't believe in God, we don't believe in religion, we don't believe in, you know, in, in, in bourgeois or, you know, monarchist culture and all these kinds of things. And so when they're denying their own Russianness, it becomes very easy to say, they're oppressing their own people because, you know, the actual Russian culture is a thing and Soviet culture is a sci-fi movie. Um, I don't think we can do not, nothing like that applies for the situation that we've got now. Well, the cold war is also an ideological war, right? Which this isn't, I mean, you can make an argument. This is a battle of liberal democracies against illiberal authoritarianism. Uh, but there's lots of illiberal authoritarianism in the world. Uh, the Cold War was a distinctly ideological fight, right? and that's how people um, on both sides saw it. So uh, we don't have that 
today, which, uh, I mean, you talk about analogies. We're always reaching for analogies. It helps us make us understand the world better. If you think about the Iraq war, right, we had dueling analogies. On one side, it was Munich. Right? Munich teaches you, you never, you know, um, you never appease dictators. Okay, so we don't appease Saddam. And then the other side, you had the Vietnam people, right? The teaches us not to go fighting wars, and especially non-Western countries, and get bogged down in places we don't understand. Uh, you know, neither of them, I think, were, were great analogies for the Iraq war. I mean, both of them had parts of them that, that helped us understand it, but they weren't great. But now, I, mean, I read Elliot Abrams the other day, right? He was calling for a new Cold War. It's, I respect him, but it's not a surprise that Elliot Abrams, who kind of cut his teeth on the Cold War, would sort of reach for those analogies. It sort of helps us to make, understand the world. Uh, it's not always the best way. But yeah, no, I, I don't see this as a Cold War. I don't see this as an ideological war. It's a... Yeah, um, see, but this is the problem. I, I have no problem calling it a Cold War if it's lowercase c to lowercase w, right? I mean, like, right. We're, we can't trade with China as if it were Switzerland. We cannot, you know, give military technology to them. We need to bring some supply chain home, some supply chain stuff home. We need to sort of shore up allies at the front lines as a sort of pseudo kind of containment. These are all things that I'm totally open to in terms of, like, having a more confrontational approach to China. We're in a lowercase c, lowercase w cold war with Russia right now, right? Where we are not actually fighting them, but we're doing everything it's we can to undermine war. them. Yeah. It's a classic and, proxy war. And so the that's my problem is like uh, the analogy of when people say a cold war, 99% of people think, oh, we're going to replay cold the cold war when in fact it's, a, it's just a different thing. And it would probably be best if we came up with some new term for it. Um, Cause I've been trying to think about this. I, th I may even ask you about this the last time we were on here, um, but the relationship, like the, 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 in the cold war, the Soviet union was not an economic powerhouse, not trading with the Soviet union was no great loss for anybody. Um, uh, there was a profound ideological difference. You know, we put under God and the pledge of allegiance to, um, um, differentiate ourselves from the godless commies and all that. What, you know, but so China, forget Russia for a second, China, I, it's nominally atheist, but really so are the Chinese generally. Like Chinese culture is kind of like, you know, they're the, the least religious, but most superstitious people in the world is the old cliche about them. Um, and, uh, but they're not, you know, they're not an economic weakling, you know, they're not, they're, they're a very serious power that is engaged in the world in commerce and in diplomacy in ways that just don't look a lot like the Soviet Union. They kind of want their place in the sun. Do you have an analogy? Do you think there's a better analogy for what China is? Is it Germany? The one I keep coming back to is sort of Germany in the late 19th century when it finally unifies and finally feels its oats and wants its place in the sun and feels like it's got to push people out of the way to get it. Um, sort of culturally powerful, culturally distinct, um, economically, industrially powerful. Um, but even there, there are obvious problems with, with, with the analogy. Do you have a better one? I mean, this is like, I mean, I, dry I like Bund. avoid analogies, right? <laughs> it's because it, it is kind of unique. Yes. A, I mean, we are so into, you know, in, in terms of the international economy or right, our economy is so integrated with China despite these attempts in the last few years to kind of pull back a little bit, I don't see how you could do that uh, in any realistic way. 
Uh, and even, you know, we talked before about China's influence in, in America. Um, you know, <laughs> during the Cold War, there was a lot of concern about spies, Soviet spies. And yeah, there were a few hundred Soviet spies. Um, but just think about how many, uh, you know, how many people in the United States are, I don't want to say working for the Chinese, but are, you know, China has has pretty well penetrated American society. And I don't mean that in a you know, I, I mean that in a serious way that you have former congressmen and senators who are basically working for China. Um, you have business people, you know, and Disney is, is happy to go down and you know, I don't want to get into the whole Florida thing. They're happy to go down and, and you know, complain to DeSantis about something. Would they ever say anything about China? No. You know, the NBA with China. These are uh, I don't you don't have that in, in late 19th century Germany. I mean, Germany is kind of integrated in a broader industrial economy, world economy, but not to the extent that we have today. So this is something completely unique, something completely new. I mean, China is also an imperialist power. Germany was to a, probably a smaller extent than England, but I mean, who's the biggest imperial power today? It's China. I mean, China's all over Africa in ways I think that a lot of Americans don't understand. I don't know how to, how do you how do you deal with that? It's it's going to need to figure out how to deal with that. It's going to take people not looking backwards but looking forwards, figuring out new ways to contain. There's the other word, right? Contain China, and I think that's a useful that's a useful term. I mean, Cold War is not so great. I think contain is 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 a more useful broad little C contain. How do you contain and, and check the power of, of China? Yeah, I mean, because contain is a is a tactical term. And Cold War is a strategic term, right? Um, you know, one of the points that my friend um, Michael Brennan Doherty made on the Editor's Podcast recently was that during every war, there's this period of, there, there are these excesses that people are embarrassed by later. Um, and I think that's true. But, um, you know, the, he's talking about on the home front, right? Sort of war fever kind of thing. Freedom flies, yeah. In retrospect, we could have done without that. But, at the same time, it, it seems to me that like getting back to this sort of Russophobia argument, um, the nature of those kinds of things has been lessening over time, right? So in World War I, really horrible things happened. Um, World War II, some very bad things happened, not counting like internment of Japanese, which was a legitimately terrible thing, right? But... Um, and in Vietnam, there were a bunch of people who got punched in the face. Not great, but not quite the same thing either. Um, and then by the time you get to, you know, the Iraq war, it's it's freedom fries, which is not like no one's harmed by freedom fries and 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 nobody's harmed by pulling Russian dressing, even though I don't think that's actually happening, even though kind of Russian dressing is kind of gross. Um, do you think that that's a result of the fact that there are fewer and fewer actual families that are engaged who have, who have skin in the game as it were in wars i mean what is there an, do you think there's first of all do you think i'm right and second of all do you do you have an explanation for it yeah i think generally it's right i mean there was you know, you could debate about anti-muslim feelings after 9-11 i mean i think there was a brief spurt of it after 9-11 there's some some poor sikh guy who was killed he's not even muslim yeah. right he's murdered. I mean, there was a little bit of it but no i i think in some ways, we're becoming a more civilized country, right? We 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 have crime, we have lots of crime, but those kinds of things there there are societal checks on that, right? You've got anti Asian hate today, but and that's certainly true. 
Um, but there's also great societal pressure to keep that in check and to, to go after people who do that and to bring awareness to that kind of hate. So, yeah, I think there, there are societal things. But no, I mean, we're not we're not in a war against Russia. We're not. Um, and even in, during the uh, I mean, there was a I don't know. when you think about 9-11, right, there was a lot of anger after 9-11. Right. I think I think you agree. Right. After 9-11, a lot of a lot of Americans were unhappy, rightfully so. You know, you could argue that the amount of hate crimes compared to the anger was pretty low, mm-hmm. right? You know, given the anger and what happened, um, there was not as many attacks as you would predict. Um, we weren't fighting a war right then. So, um, so yeah, I, I, I don't, we have skin in the game. Uh, you know, I, I don't know how many people had skin in the game in, in, after 9-11 in Iraq and Afghanistan, not that many, um, but there was still anti Muslim feelings. Right. But if you go back and you look at like the hate crimes numbers from the FBI for the decade following nine 11, with the exception, I think of in 2002, uh, um, anti-Semitic hate crimes outnumbered anti-Muslim well, that's, hate crimes. That's true today, right? When yeah. you look at Asian versus anti-Semitic, uh, this is line with statistics. So, you know, Asian hate crimes are up 600% and, you know, they're up from 10 to 60, but, you know, anti-Semitic hate crimes are far, far higher than that. Yeah, no, I think that's true. It's uh, all these statistics get kind of, but yeah, you know, 2002, right? The immediate aftermath of there really was that anger, 2001, 2002, you can see that, but no, it sort of dissipated over time. I mean, look at the debate. Remember, I think we've forgotten all this now, the debate over the mosque at near ground zero in Manhattan, right? They were going to build a mosque down there and there was certainly opposition in New York to it, but there's also plenty of people who are like, this is wrong. You know, you should, the opposition's wrong. Why shouldn't they build a mosque? And, um, I even think, I think Bloomberg supported the building of the mosque down there. Yeah, that, that's one, that, that's an example of something that I think I was on the wrong side of that. I mean, I didn't write about it a lot because it was too hard to follow. And I, You're on the wrong side do, of history, Jonah, the wrong side of history. We're not going to go into that one again. Uh, but I am, um, uh, I was I, pretty sure I was on the wrong side of that in part because there were people I trusted who said that the people behind building the mosque were no good, but. I think it's turned out that I was just wrong on that. Um, and um, no, because this is the, so this is the other thing I'm th- keep thinking about it with the, with the prospect of a cold war with China. Like, as you recall, at the beginning of the pandemic, the initial response from a whole bunch of uh, internet sort of UN types, public health types, academic types, um, and some Democrats was to say that criticism of wet markets is racist criticism, even wearing a mask is kind of racist you know, blah, blah, blah. It was all sorts of weird stuff. Um, uh, Trump's travel ban was supposedly racist in the pandemic. And, um, the, I, idea that you could maintain the level of national cohesion that was necessary for the cold war about a non-white European country strikes, you know, just the forces of intersectionality and anti-Westernism would have a real problem talking about not trying to drag that stuff into the China debate. And similarly, like, um, uh, the, that whole put under God in the, in the pledge of allegiance thing, you know, Christianity doesn't have the binding power that it once did. It just seems to me like we don't have the kind of social cohesion or domestic political arrangements that 
are well suited for a sustained twilight intergenerational twilight struggle. We had social cohesion for what about six months after 9-11, I think, some form of, of national cohesion where people said, let's put aside partisan bickering, let's and, and that was it. That was all we had. But even during the Cold War, we forget, you know, by the 60s, the West was kind of done with the Cold War. We had yeah. post-politique in Europe, detente here. Uh, a lot of people were just saying, eh, you know, especially a lot of Europeans uh, were saying, eh, you know, let's 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 find a way to coexist with the, the East and the Soviets. And it wasn't until Reagan, where it was really Reagan and, and the neocons. And it was the Committee on Present Danger, which revives the Cold War and, you know, brings it back and challenges the Soviet Union one final time. Otherwise, I think, yeah, people have sort of given up on it. Not not everyone, but large chunks. Uh, today, yeah, I don't know. The social cohesion is, is incredibly low. You know, the book I'm writing now is a lot about the, the role of the Catholic Church in the Cold War. And so much of, I just wrote a couple of chapters about World War II, the religious imagery in World War II, FDR, you know, he basically calls it a war for Christian civilization. Uh, this is, you know, you cannot imagine, no one would ever say that, no, no Republican would ever say that today, or would frame any kind of war in those terms, because of what you said, that there would be lots of people in America who would see that as racist, as something else, and say, I want no part of that. Now, let's switch gears for a second. I, I, I want to, um, there's some, there's some tomfoolery going on at your school, which we'll get to in a second. Um, but, um, uh, you were in a previous time my go-to guy for all things New York. I assume that you um you're still dropping Benjamins on the shoeshine guys to find out what's going on. Um, Finger uh, on the pulse. Um, what what is your narrative about why the crime spiked? Right. I mean, if you listen to to people like Kevin McCarthy, it's because defund the police. But there wasn't any real defunding of the police in New York, right? Um, no, and there's a, yeah. there was talk of it, which is bad, right. right? I mean, but anyway, um, uh, look, what has two thumbs and hates defunding the police? This guy, don't get me wrong, but like, um, it seems to me like there's that the stupidity of the idea sometimes has more persuasive power than the actual reality on the ground. Like, I think in Minneapolis, there was some defunding of the police and they paid a price for it politically and also in terms of crime. But what is your theory of the case about why crime is spiking, not just in New York, but all over the place? Uh, in, in 30 seconds? <laughs> you can have 45. Yeah. Okay. So, <laughs> no, it, there wasn't defund the police in New York, but there was a, a mayor who was increasingly deeply antagonistic towards the police. Uh, there were police shootings, police assassinations a few years ago. Uh, and New York police, I think, are, and most police, but especially talk about New York now, we'll start with that are very sensitive to these things. Uh, you know, the, one thing that happened in the 70s is well, the police pulled back. They, they, they started spending a lot more time in their cars and they weren't going to go out because they knew they did not have the backing of the administration, of, the, of City Hall, and even of lots, you know, of, of a chunk of the public. Police know that, they understand that. And I think that's been happening over the last six or seven years, right? The police have definitely been pulling back. Remember, stop and frisk. So very controversial policy. That's that's not defunding the police, but that's you know, the police were being accused of, of racism. They were accused of being brutal, especially towards people of color. Um, not 
let's not get into a debate about stop and frisk. But the city said, okay, we're not going to do that. Then the police said, hey, look, you know, why should I, you know, why should I get involved? I know that there are people on the street that have guns. I can, you know, I can look and I I have a pretty good sense that that person might be carrying a gun, but I'm not going to go and stop. Um, I'm not going to stop them. There's no upside to that. So they're going to pull back. So that's one thing that's, that's happening. Um, in New York. I mean, that's, that's a big thing that's happened in New York. But there's, there's crime national. Crime is going up. Um, you know, we're still debating why crime went down in the 60s, <laughs> 70s. You know, I mean, why crime went up and then why crime went down. It's the, the, the reasons why we had the, you know, the, the great 90s, 2000s crime decline. There's no one reason. There's some people say, oh, it's policing, right? It's, it's, uh, it's broken windows, it's Comstat, it's all of these things. And others say, no, it's demographic changes. And others say, oh, it's increasing um, incarceration, all of these factors in this. And no one really knows. So why crime is going up now, I think we're still trying to figure out. But one, one problem is that. And I think that criminals understand criminals are not dumb. I mean, there are some dumb criminals but you know, many of these criminals, there's some of the stuff, some of the robberies here turn out to be organized robberies, right? There are, you know, and not just in New York, but throughout the country. We had here, uh, I'll just say, um, during the George Floyd, the riots around then, we didn't have very much, Boston came out of it pretty well, but where I live, we have a pretty upscale mall. And the, I guess the next day, there were about 40 cars, the mall was closed. The, the, there were 40 cars in the parking lot many of them out of state plates and the police heard that. And the police went over there and for just in their cars, they didn't get out of the cars and those cars slowly drove away. Right. Hmm. And this, this was an organized gang, which was going to utilize this time of chaos to go and, and loot an upscale mall. I mean, I'm pretty sure that that's what it was. So yeah. So, so criminals are not dumb. They understand this. Um, and they understand when there's no pressure being put on them that they can do more things. There's also, I mean, there are fewer people on the streets the last couple of years. I think about Jane Jacobs' eyes on the street. But one thing that makes a, a city safe is having lots of people, lots of people around, lots of people looking, lots of people engaged in the city. Uh, you know, think about the 1970s versus 1990s. You know, a lot, lot fewer people going out at night because they're scared. And it's, and it's a cyclical thing. Right? As more people get scared, more people go inside means there's more room for criminals to act and crime is going to go up, which drives more people inside. So you keep having that. And I think you're seeing that today. I think that's what's going on. Um, there's the, the issue of homeless and mental illness, which never really disappeared, but seems to be coming back, uh, you know, put, pushing people on the, on the subway platform. And this is horrible. Uh, these are clearly mentally ill people that are out. So there's that. There's, I think there's just, a, it doesn't have to be defund the police, right? It does, you don't have to have a law that says we're going to cut the police budget. The police, I think, are extremely, extremely sensitive. One may, might say overly sensitive to any sort of sense that they are not being defended or supported politically from the powers that be or the public. It's funny. I was talking to um, my wife about this yesterday. She was reading about the another homeless guy who murdered somebody and she was like you know this is nuts what's going on in new york and i said you know what's weird about it is like that feels very familiar to me from the 70s and early 80s growing up um and then it kind of went away um but I, like remember larry hogue the madman of yeah. what was it 90, 96th street um 80 yeah yeah, 80, 90, yeah i think it was 96 um uh for listeners who don't know this was a guy who was had severe like bipolar disorder and then um and then tried to even it out with some crack 
and did terrible things. He pushed kids in front of cars in the street. He like he, uh, attacked was people. He the machete guy? Was he the machete guy? Did he run around with the machete? I'm not There's sure if some... he was the machete guy. Um, hmm. Maybe. Um, but the thing is, because of New York laws, he would get put in, he would get arrested and put on a 24-hour psych hold. And then the rule was that if you were no longer a threat to yourself or others, you had to be released. And the problem was, once he was no longer on crack and was put back on his meds, he wasn't a threat. But the second he got outside, he was like, I don't like the meds, I like the crack, and the cycle would repeat itself. And it was one of those classic examples of the law being an ass that you couldn't keep this guy confined. Um, but the... Uh, so I have, you know, I, I talk about this a lot on here and I don't want to dwell on it, but I, I think the pandemic caused is a big factor in a lot of the crimes. Just you lock people up, you deny them the ability to work, you give them money um, not to work. There's boredom, there's frustration, there's all sorts of things going on. Um, and then in the case of the, and I also think that sort of in a, in a similar way, the there's a thinking about crime as a matter of like social contagiousness, sort of like, um, you know, there's those famous stories of St. Vitus's dance in the in the Middle Ages where people would start uncontrollably dancing in the streets and then other people would start doing it. Or like those famous things where, you know, like Kramer has to have eye drops and so he's looking up and all of a sudden everybody's looking up because, it, you know, like yawns are contagious. I think to a certain extent there's, I'm not saying it's the all explanatory thing, but part of it is also just sort of, there is a, there's a copycat effect. And like with these, Homeless people normally don't go around killing people. You know, I mean, there are a lot of crazy homeless people on the streets, but if I wish they weren't on the streets, but they normally don't shove people in front of trains. It happens every now and then in New York history. But the fact that there's a huge spike feels to me like this is the cool new trend, as it were. I mean, I don't mean to minimize it because it's terrifying, but um, it, I can't think of another. There can't be some sort of Marxian structural interpretation that explains why in one year you have two people being pushed off platforms and the next year you have 15 other than this sort of social contagion thing. Right. And, and I mean, I do believe that the pandemic is and we're going to see this I and mean, continue. There's a mental health crisis going on, um, which I think it, pre it definitely predated the pandemic. The pandemic has made it worse. Um and, you know, there's also a sense we, we're seeing a lot here. I don't know if you're seeing down DC. Once kids start going back to school, the middle schools and high schools had outbreaks of fights, like huge fights in school because kids, teenagers who were stuck inside, not socializing with others, all of a sudden are, are now socializing and they don't know how to deal with each other and get along. And I don't think that's going to disappear overnight. These, these teenagers are going to grow up and they're going to, you know, become, you know, 20 somethings. I'm not saying they're all going to be criminals, but yeah, there's something that's clearly going on uh, in terms of socialization that the pandemic has really messed with. And it's going to take a while to untangle. And that's only going to make everything that sort of predated worse. I think the, the drug stuff, drugs are, are an issue. We saw that pre pandemic. So I don't know. I, I don't know where it goes. Um, but I, I do believe that police presence, police response, police strategies and tactics play a part in reducing crime. Is it the whole issue? No, it's not. But it's certainly a part of it. And um, I think right now the police are just, a lot of police are leaving, right? And the other thing is the police are just, they're pulling back. They're holding back. They're not going to go and, and enforce the law. They're not going to pull, and they pulled tons and tons, say what you want about stop and frisk, pull tons of guns off the streets, right? 
now you've just got, you never know. If, I mean, listen, the 90s and 2000s, you know, there's, you know, concerns of crime. There's a crime happened, but, you know, I, you didn't walk around going, did that guy carry a gun? Is that guy? Now, you know, there's great concern if the, the guy who's, you know, walking down Times Square, uh, menacing look that he's got a gun on. And the funny thing about this is like, um, by not every benchmark, but by quite a few, stop and frisk should actually be considered a liberal policy, right? Because it's liberals who are the most obsessed about, you know, it's like when Biden went to New York a couple of months ago and he talked about the rise in crime, it was all about guns, right? It was like these guns on the street are responsible for all of these shootings. And they make it sound like the guns are sentient beings that are coming into town and no one's pulling the triggers. Walk, walking into town. Uh, <laughs> or then they have these gun, these gun buyback programs and yeah. you look at the guns and there's like, you know, BB guns and there are these you know, air guns. And you're like, no, this is this is not solving anything. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it's this pa- that passive voice stuff drives me crazy in a bunch of things is like in the talk about the humanitarian corridors in Ukraine. The press repeatedly will say things like, um, the quarters broke down due to shelling. Not they don't say who's doing the shelling, right? It's not and bombs were um, falling. Yeah. <laughs> or, you know, screws fall. The world's an imperfect place. Um, it's the it's the passive voice, right? We we teach yeah. we teach students not to write in the passive voice, because when you write in the passive voice, you take out the subject, you know, the person right. who's doing the thing. And that's right. yeah. But like with the gun thing, I mean, like not having if illegal guns are their problem and you think guns in themselves are evil talismans, like, and you think the state has the power to treat gun ownership like a public health issue, which is a classic liberal talking point, then stop and frisk is, is kind of in very many ways a liberal woman. The problem is it runs up against the sort of racial politics of it all. And that means they have to throw all of those other things out the window. But I guarantee you, if you could do stop and frisk solely for dudes in MAGA hats, Liberals would have no problem with it whatsoever. Um, yeah, it's a it's a disparate impact thing, right? It's it's, um, but yeah, no. I, and this is the problem with gun control is that they have no policy to figure out how to deal with those kinds of guns. Um, and that's what's really you know that's a big part of what's going on, in, in, especially in a lot of urban areas, the proliferation of illegal guns. So I I wanted to ask you about this when it was happening, but I don't think you were on at the time. Um, and I just kind of curious whether you're pulling out your hair during the whole, during the defund the police stuff, the widespread talking point, shockingly widespread talking point that policing has its roots in America in fugitive slave patrols. <laughs> I'm sorry. Viewers can't see Vin rubbing his face in frustration here. Um, I, I did a pretty deep dive on this, uh, and uh, I have strong opinions, but I, I, like, like, what were you thinking when all that stuff was going on? So I'll just catch my breath here. Yes, There's a lot of bad history, right? And there's a lot of people who use history, and this is not new, right, who use history to make contemporary political points. And I think this is an example. And if enough people say it, say something, then it gets, and I've seen this, you know, I've seen ostensibly smart people say this because they've heard other people say it. And you've heard other people say it it creates a life of its own where it's completely obvious to anyone who knows that the modern policing is a function of urbanization of cities in the 19th century starts in England. In America, it's a mid 19th century thing. And who's coming to America in the mid 19th century? The Irish. 
Right? You got immigrants coming in. They're poor. There's a need. There's a need for social control for control in these cities. Uh, and modern police force is designed for that. I mean, just because there were, and there certainly were slave catchers. There were kind of organized slave catchers out there. But the link from that to modern policing, just because they're both doing some kind of law enforcement, enforcing a law, is boggles the mind. Yeah. No. This 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 comes out of 19th century. You know, London, and then in Boston and New York. Um, it's an ur- it's a completely urban thing. Yeah. So I, I pulled the thread on this and like when you get into fights with people about how this is a nonsense talking, it's not a nonsense talking point. It is just enough sense in it to make it something you have to engage for five minutes to explain why it's dumb. But in South Carolina, I think Georgia, one or two other Southern States, some slave patrol, fugitive slave patrols got some of their members got subsumed into the first police departments in those places. Um, that's it. That is the sum total of the factual basis of that thing. But the idea that, you know, and in, including like response, fairly responsible people like Jim Clyburn were saying, we know policing began in this country as slave patrols. Like really? So that explains the, the George Floyd stuff in Minneapolis. Um, you know, does it explain the something like 6,000 African-American police chiefs in this country? I mean, there's it's it was such a nonsense sort of transit, almost poetic, literary kind of argument once you started looking at it. But I, I do have this question because I was actually, when I started looking into this stuff, I was surprised how young police departments are in America. Who was doing the police function before there were police departments? Because the police function... Exists, yeah, goes back to think, Rome or whatever, you know, or Byzantine, right. Byzantium. I think my understanding in places like Boston, New York, there are things called magistrates who are, who are civil officials who were in charge with enforcing. I mean, but they didn't patrol. I think they were charged with enforcing. And here I'm, I'm trying to pull this out of the recesses of my brain here. Uh, I haven't looked at this in a long time. They were uh, charged of doing basic civil disturbances or enforcement of, of, you know, contract violations or property violations. Um, yeah, I, I don't think they carried weapons. Um, it's, it's sort of like before they were, but if you murdered somebody, if you murdered somebody would like, would just the crowd grab you and then hand you over to the marshal kind of thing? I think the more, yeah, I think the more, yeah, the marshal would, that's a good, I, that I don't know. I, I should probably stop right there. Um, but that's the same thing with fire departments, right? Before there were the fire departments, there were fire brigades. There were people who were fire watchers. Yeah. Um, the whole idea of police, modern policing and modern fires, it's the rationalization and the organization of this, that you're going to have this, an organization, you're going to have a, civil service, you're going to have a way to get people in, you're going to have a way to train people. Now, again, they weren't always the best trained. Um, that's what you have. I mean, there were certainly law enforcement before you had modern policing. Right. As long as you have law, you're going to have enforcers. In the same way there were sort of, there were doctors before there were paramedics uh, medical, and all that kind of stuff. And yeah. a medical profession. There was doctors yeah. before there was a medical profession. Right. The medical profession, I think, is most of the professions are, are late 19th century inventions, which had doctors before that. Um, no, it's it, I think you're going to hear a lot less of that meme about policing. It seems like this defund the police is starting to backfire. Right. Even places like San Francisco, many of the, you, you can't really go down this road because what's going to happen? You're not going to have a police force. The police are going to leave and, and residents are going to leave. Uh, I, there used to be a thing. One of the problems in New York and other cities in the 70s and 80s 
was the idea that high crime was just what you have to live with if you wanted to live in New York or any other big city. That's just the price you paid for living in big cities. And I think one of the things in the 90s, the Giuliani era, one of the things is they, is that people started saying, no, that's actually not true. You don't have to put up with high crime. And today, though, people are saying, I'm not going to put up with high crime, but they often move. They'll move to places that don't have high crime. Um, I know a friend of my wife's who lives out in Minneapolis, about a year ago, they said, oh, yeah, they moved to Wisconsin. They moved. Yeah, they just moved like 30 <laughs> miles out. Hmm, I wonder why they moved, you know, out of what was the reason? And people are, you know, people are self-interested. People know what's best for their family and their safety. And, you know, they're going to look around and if they can't call, if you can't call the police, right? If something, if there's a burglar on your yard and if you call the police and they don't respond, what is the average homeowner going to do? They're going to say, you know what? I am, I'm not sure that this is going to be a smart thing for me to stay in a place like that. Yeah, so yeah, um, so just last night I saw that um, Amazon is relocating something like four hundred of its employees from downtown Seattle, like right in the. I mean, like we've walked around, you know, like I know that that neighborhood. That's like the tourist neighborhood, yeah. and it's yeah. become too crazy, too crime ridden for them to safely have Amazon employees work there, and they're moving and them didn't all they out. Spend like hundreds and hundreds of million dollars building this new. I think uh, so. Headquarters. I, I haven't. I haven't been there I've been in Seattle in a couple decades. But yeah, I read about this. No, co- corporations are not dumb, right? Uh, when Walgreens closes up, starts closing up its its uh, pharmacies in New York City, it's it's making a rational decision that they just can't keep these stores open. And if you can't access a a, a pharmacy in your neighborhood, how long are you going to stay in that in that neighborhood until you go find somewhere else? where pharmacies can actually stay open because they're not being constantly, you know, shoplifted out of existence. Yeah. That's one of the reasons why I think crime is a regressive tax on poor people because it's going to hit poor people harder for all sorts of ways. If you don't have a grocery store in your neighborhood, you have to walk five more blocks to get to one. You're more likely to get mugged. Things are going to be more expensive. I mean, in, in a million ways, large and small, it is the people who are most affected by crime are the people with the fewest resources to deal with it or get out of its way. Well, that's like, yeah, the, the food desert issue, right? I mean, there are lots of reasons, but one of the reasons is a lot of these stores, a lot of these supermarkets have made a decision that they cannot economically keep a store open in certain neighborhoods because of uh, the term is leakage, right? You know, the, the shoplifting. And I, you know, my father worked, he was a, he, he was a beer salesman and he worked in, um, sold beer to bars, but also to supermarkets and, and in, in cities as well. And, you know, I knew this 40 years ago, he would tell me about, you know, about supermarkets uh, in urban neighborhoods that just couldn't stay open. They said, you know, the, the, and not talking about big ones, talking about small ones, small neighborhood ones, can't can't do it. Um, and they're going to make a economic decision, say it doesn't make sense. And the people who are hurt by that are poor people. Can't go to a decent grocery store and get food or have to go you know, five miles out of the way. All right. So you said businesses aren't stupid. You're a, I, I, I hate to say this so, complimentary, but you're a scholar of urban America. Um, uh, why are politicians so dumb? I mean, like, like the San Francisco school board stuff, right? I mean, you, they spent half the pandemic getting, you know, changing the names of schools from, you know, Abraham Lincoln to, you know, you know, Bakari sellers or whatever. I don't know what it was, but it was like really dumb stuff. And they're discriminating against Asian kids. And you have, people politicians talking about you know even saying the words defund the police is by definition to me an incredibly stupid thing for a urban politician to do 
Um, what explains the, you know, you can have another 30 seconds. What explains the stranglehold on sort of not liberal politics on cities? Cities are always going to be liberal, but dumb sort of hardcore, progressive, unpopular, taking the 20 and an 80, 20 issue politics. I think it's political science 101. There's a constituency there uh, for it. Unfortunately, uh, you know, who, who voted for Bill de Blasio? Lots of New Yorkers and, and lots of sane New Yorkers, rational New Yorkers voted for this, this guy. And I think in San Francisco, the same thing until things got bad enough that they said, wait a second, maybe we shouldn't be supporting people like these school board members. And, um, but even still, even with that school board thing, there's still plenty of San Francisco residents who think those school board people are great. What they're doing is terrific. Um, there's a market there, right? Think about it. There's there's a market for those ideas, especially in urban areas. And there's a market, um, unfortunately, among people who are college educated, young, you know, college educated professionals who flock to cities for whatever reason, um, buy a lot of this stuff, uh, buy the idea that we have to take you know, George Washington's name off of a school. I, I think these politicians aren't, they're not out there on their own. They're responding to a certain element of their constituency. Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, I'll agree with you that there are constituencies for it, and that's the 20 I was referring to. But, like, you know, one of my obsessions is with, you know, all these people talking about voter suppression in Texas or Georgia, and we can have those arguments about what, what is real and what is fake there. But, like, some of the greatest voter vote suppressors in America are public sector unions in New York State and New York City, right? They move the election day to certain times. They want to keep turnout very low. They're against sort of holidays for voting except for their members where they get, they get the day off. Um, and I think like the Yunkin thing, the Yunkin election is a perfect example of this is that Terry McAuliffe was married to the model that teachers equals turnout and votes in fairly low turnout elections and that, uh, or not even low turnout elections, but that parents, if they don't attain to use a Marxist phrase, class consciousness as parents, right? If they don't see themselves as voting as a block, then they cancel each other out, or in places like Virginia, they lean Democratic, at least in, in Northern Virginia. But because of the idiocy of how the teachers' unions and the teachers and the Democrats ran the schools during the pandemic, all of a sudden, parents moved, not entirely, but significantly towards the Republicans. And if you just do the math, it is almost impossible not to realize that for every teacher, there's something like 40 parents. <laughs> and so they became this massively dangerous voting block for Democrats. Similarly in New York, I think if you, let's, I, I'm against mandatory voting, but like if you had mandatory voting in New York, you would get a lot more politicians like Bloomberg or even Giuliani than you would like de Blasio. De Blasio was elected in part because it was such a low turnout election and his constituency, he knew they could turn out and everyone else was sort of like, eh, why bother? Hey, well, there's a lot. Why aren't people voting? Right. There's a lot of disengagement. Um, right. One of, the, one of the things I've been thinking a lot about the last few years in New York is kind of the breakdown of the trying to find the right term, sort of a civic culture. Right? There, there used to be in the old days, and there still exists, a citizens budget committee. There were all these kind of groups that would say, oh, you know, you're spending too much money. This is bad. And, and the citizens budget committee is still there, but it has no juice. Um, you used to have homeowners associations and all, you know, neighborhoods. Um, a lot of that, not all of it, but a lot of that is broken down. It's the way that average people engage in politics. 
So the people who engage in politics, the people who are most engaged are, as I said, the public sector unions and the, the general, um, you know, the general nonprofit sector, which is kind of allied with them. Uh, that's the Seth Barron has a book about New York that review. He calls it the prog. You know, it's, it's like a blob. It's a prog blob. It's non-sector workers. It's, it's public sector unions. It's politicians. They all go back and forth. Those are the ones who are actively engaged. If you look at a place like San Francisco as well, I mean, a lot of problems is that there's no opposition, right? There's, they're one party states and you don't have a significant party or a significant coalition that's able to present a halfway decent alternative to this. So if you can't, you know, and that's, that's happening more and more in New York, and it's happening more and more, not just in New York City, but New York State, unfortunately. And what you're seeing the Democrats are doing is they are slowly, slowly strangling what's left of the Republican Party uh, in, in the state. And uh, I mean, I don't think that bodes well at all. And it creates, it's the other thing in politics, you probably know there's some, some term for it. In both sides, it's really the extremes that drive the party, right? It's, it's, it's the extreme, and that's what you're seeing on the left. And when you don't have a check on that, um, I think it just it, it gives the people who are most engaged, most ideological, it gives them more power. I mean, I know plenty of people who voted for de Blasio who didn't like him. And you say, well, but why? And he said, well, there's the other alternative. You know, who else was I going to vote for? Um, so that allows that 30, 20 or 30 percent to sort of get into power. That's always the argument about liberals as well. But, and I guess you could turn it around to Republicans that liberals have always enabled the left. That's, that's what you sort of see in the 60s, that liberals always saw the, the problems were really the right. The, the left was sort of their wayward children. There, there's a great line from Tom Wicker uh, in the late 60s during, I forget what it was. It might have been Days of Rage. And he, he looked out and said, those are our children. You know, that's, they're, they're, they're us. They're just our kind of wayward, yeah, slightly kooky children. So we're, um, and, and I think that's going on as well. And, and the key I, to me is, can liberals be brought back towards the center? If you look at post-war America, Cold War America, it's really a, a kind of a coalition between moderate liberals and moderate conservatives um, who drive politics, uh, drive domestic politics and, and foreign politics and create an era of relative stability and, you know, moderate social reforms that, that are able to continue. When that breaks down, you see both both ends of the spectrum kind of winning out over the middle. Yeah. I mean, the liberal thing drives me crazy. It was, I actually, I think it was Adam Bellow who first pointed this out to me about how there's this tendency among, among liberals who are not radicals to nonetheless, like, First of all, indulge young radicals, but also the old aging radicals, like, you know, they'll say about like, was it Ken Rudd or whoever, you know, at least he didn't sell out. Mark Rudd. Right? Yeah. Mark Rudd. Yeah. 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 Um, you know, you know, at least they didn't sell out or they stayed true to their principles. Oh, so you know, they stayed true to like supporting the you know, the Khmer Rouge and wanting to like murder people like you. I mean, it's there is this you know, the whole, you know, you know, Che Guevara cult. You know, it's like there's a this weird thing in 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 sort of moderate liberalism that still has this, and it's probably in human beings in general. You know, but it, it, there's much less of a history of it on the right of saying that. Well, at least he's authentic, right? Like, you know, he's an authentic radical. He's a true rebel, um, as if that somehow erases the fact that. He's a murderer. <laughs> you know? I mean, like, who cares if he's, you know, sticking true to his principles if his principles are evil? 
but that's just me. And 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 the radicals hate liberals. That's that's the funny thing. It's this really right. dysfunctional relationship because the radicals despise the liberals and, and in some ways hate liberals more than they hate the right because they see the liberals as weak, as unable to really um, you know, fulfill their ideology. Who are they? See the liberals as inauthentic. Right, right. You know, it's like you look at the moderates. How ta- how how much they play nice on Alexandria Ocasio Cortez and how much Alexandria Alexandria Cortez sticks her thumb in their eyes. You know, it's a, it's the, that dynamic times ten. I, I very quickly since we're talking about radicals and 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 silly things, uh, and I understand that this may put you in a place that you have to be somewhat diplomatic. But I saw this thing, uh, Jeff Jacoby um, uh, wrote this column about how at UMass Boston, a bunch of STEM professors rose up in defiance of the new fatwa about uh, turning University of Massachusetts Boston into a uh, institution that just produces social justice. Um, What the hell's going on? This is where I work. Um, yeah, it sort of it became a national story because of Jeff's column and uh, the Chronicle of Higher Education picked it up. It's important to remember that. So there's I didn't even know that this was going on until the petition got into my mailbox. But there's a committee at school that's working on a new mission statement for the school. Um, I guess they do this every 10 or 20 years. And it was kind of predictably woke. And some of the STEM people, the science and math people said, whoa, wait a second. And they created a petition. Um, some of my colleagues, I, we signed it. Uh, it's, there is a, the term that's being used is the desire to turn UMass Boston into an anti-racist and health affirming institution. Uh, and we can debate all those terms, but I think the point that uh, this petition made was that the main goal of universities is, is research and scholarship and, you know, free inquiry. And, you know, it's not about truth so much. Uh, and that was some of the accusations that these, the, these science people were just about objective, they, that they had the truth and others didn't. Um, I, I'm glad that this kind of became national because I think what's going to happen is a little bit of sunlight will help rain in the committee and, and maybe the final product, which is still a ways away, will not be as bad. My fear is, uh, that's a fear, in, is that, it's one thing to have a mission statement that nobody reads. You know, it's somewhere on, on page 87 of your, you know, of your handbook. But do they start making the university for promotion, for tenure, for raises? Do, do you have to say how I've, the work I've done to make, you know, my school an anti-racist thing? And once you start doing that, I think that's the fear that, um, that you're not, you don't have a university anymore. You have just another organ of social justice. Um, that doesn't mean that professors can't work towards social justice, either in their personal life or even in their professional life. We have lots of, um, you know, we have colleges, we have social workers and things like that. And that's their mission. That's fine. Um, but I, I don't know what health affirming is uh, in that sense. I, that, that wasn't my training in, in grad school. To, you know, I, I understand I want my students to be healthy. And we're very concerned, especially today, about the health of students. Um, but, yeah, that's that's the great concern is is. is the university is still going to be a research university where people are allowed to go down the paths of their research, whatever it may be. And one of the scientists said, I, I teach quantum physics. How do I do anti-racist quantum physics? You know, I, how do I do that? So, yeah, this is this is the the argument. I, I've always said I've been at UMass Boston a long time and, and for 19 years, they've pretty much left me alone, which is great. I have no, and there's a great there's been a great culture at school. And this uh, this is not what your listeners want to hear. I won't go into it. Uh, uh, 
where school's about 50 years old and there's a history, a reason why there's this kind of laissez-faire attitude. But I, I get the sense that that's changing and that administrators want to see, you know, what are you doing to further these social justice goals? Obviously, I think that that's bad, not just for me, but I think that's bad for university. It's bad for uh, academic freedom. Yeah, I mean, I, I could go a bunch of different ways on all of this stuff. None of them laudatory um, of this trend. Um, but, you know, I've, I was talking to a friend yesterday who was saying how a um, very old friend of his teaches at Harvard, and it's a feeling of constant fear that some student is going to take offense at something, right? And, um, and it's very difficult to educate from a position of fear. Um, and, uh, I, 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 I'm getting to the point where I really do just simply want to see the higher ed bubble just collapse, um, because it is very difficult to defend the middle ground anymore because the middle ground just keeps moving in, in so many crazy, so, so far to the left. And the, the, the whole concept of anti-racism to me, um, is purely about political and cultural and institutional power and, and nothing else. Um, and, um, and I've lost faith in the idea that, that, you know, cause the way you respond, the way that people should respond to this stuff is just say, get over yourselves. You know, we're going to watch to kill a mockingbird, deal with it, you know? And, um, and there's just so little appetite for that because I, and I don't, I don't quite understand why, sort of our generation and older are so afraid of young people that they're, they're just absolutely terrified to say, I mean, I don't think we are, I mean, I, I but like I, I, as a generalization, I think that explains a vast amount of the crazy stuff from what's going on in the white house to what's going on in the New York times to what's going on in academia is that the grownups are terrified to correct the children. And, um, that's a really bad place to be in as a culture. It's a really bad place. As a historian, I would say that this is kind of a long-running decline in, in, in authority in general in society, right? Authority has taken a beating in America for the last 50 years. Um, and, you know, you go back to the 60s, you can go back to the 20s, right? Uh, more and more we've empowered younger people, right? Th this idea that um, I taught my kids, we go in the car and the first thing they do is they demand to put on a certain station on the radio. And I laugh. I'm like, when I was a kid, you know, first of all, we just had AM radio, you know, that little, but we listened to whatever my dad listened to. There was no exactly. idea yeah. like, you know, this is, and, and I've talked to other parents and they say the same thing. Uh, that's a very small story, but sort of broader authority in society from whatever place it's coming from has been in decline. And, um, you know, we've weaponized, I think, students, right? They have certain weapons at their disposal. They want to go after faculty. I think the other thing, this is, this goes back to the police, right? If the police get a sense that they are not being supported, they're going to pull back on their policing. And I think, and I'm not talking about myself necessarily, but I've heard this from others, that uh, if professors feel that they are not being defended, uh, and they're going to pull back from their teaching. They're not going to do the kinds of teaching that they used to. They're not going to engage the students in the way they used to. I mean, it is harder and harder in academia to have the kinds of discussions. I mean, what we're having here. Right. These kinds of discussions. I was at a Liberty Fund event at a week ago a conference and it was great. I'll, I'll suck up to the Liberty Fund here, but it's true because <laughs> for two days, you know, 15 people sat around a table, just talked, talked about readings and history and theory, political theory. And not everyone was conservative there. We had liberals there. Um, it was great that 
that that is you just don't see that kind of stuff in academia today. I, I hate to say it. It's just not, you know, the idea that we sit in the sit in the faculty room and kick back and talk about the events of the day and current events and what happened in the Peloponnesian War. And it, no, that, that just doesn't go on. People don't talk. Um, and it's, it's sad. And it, it just does not bode well for the future of, of universities. Um, or the country, just to be honest. Yes, um, true. But, I mean, like, you know, one of my mantras these days is sort of nothing things are not as bad as you think they are and things are not as good as you think they are calm the f down um and there's such there's such a cottage industry it's not it's an industrial complex now on the left and the right to constantly keep people in a state of panic and fear and this is the next crisis and this is the worst thing ever and democracy's under threat and nuclear war is coming and and you know they're all going to make you use the wrong pronouns for the rest of your life and kid's going to have to be a, he's going to be chained to a desk during drag queen story hour for the rest of their life, all that kind of stuff. And so, you know, the fact that, you know, as we were talking about earlier about how defund the police kind of sputtered out because it dawned on Democrats, like, this is really stupid. Um, and I can point to a bunch of things like that where, you know, in sort of the sense of Tom Wolf's the great relearning, people are like, well, we gave it a try, but we're not going to get people to stop using the word mother in favor of birthing person. Right. Um, do you, what, where do you put the odds that like, there's going to be a bounce back from this? Will the next generation that comes along say, I want to have what the generation in front of me took away and, and sort of make spirited discourse cool again? You know, do you have any optimism about that? Yeah. I I mean, I think in my own life, I I try to avoid catastrophizing, right? That's a common thing. And even when things are bad, I try to say, well, you know, maybe, maybe it's not as bad. Uh, I don't think in the short term we're going to see any positive changes. Uh, my own view is that things have to get a lot, lot worse before yeah. things get better. And I think if future generations are going to have to look back at the millennials, and Z, Generation Z, and say, oh, God, you guys really screwed up. What were you doing? Why were you doing that? You know, this and and come up with, you know, relearn things, re, you know, go back to, I don't want to say go back to the classics, but, you know, discover what liberal education is again. But it's going to have to take, um, it's going to have to take something bad to happen. I mean, my bad, things are going to have to get worse before they get better because I don't see in the short term anything change dramatically. Um, and they might pull back. What's interesting, going back to our other discussion, what I see in college, a lot of the battles in college are between the left and sort of the neoliberal left. You know, that's what we have at our university as well. It's, um, that's where the fight is. And in that sense, I really don't have a dog in that fight. I'm happy to see both of them fight it out. But I don't, yeah, I don't see where we go next because remember, academia is also about building a next generation of scholars, about training future scholars. And if you look at what's going on in grad school, I, mean, I cannot recommend anyone to go to grad school. I, mean, I, I never have, but even more so now. And I see the students who are coming out, the grad students who are coming out and what they're studying and, and what their politics, broadly speaking, are. And yeah, I, I don't see any reason for optimism there. Anytime soon, unfortunately. Sorry, sorry. I, I don't don't mean to end. We just talked about not catastrophizing, but yeah, I, I, I don't see the short in the short term anything changing in the near short term. Um, since I don't want to leave it just purely on a negative note, do you? What, what, I've been meaning. I've been trying to figure this out for a while now. I feel like, as you know, I kind of like conservative intellectual history and intellectual history generally, and 
origins of terms and labels. That's sort of one of the things I'm into. When did neoliberal like sneak up on cat's paws and become like this indomitable term of art in intellectual discourse? Because I feel like I was at summer camp or something when this happened. And it was like my daughter, you know, there's some movies that came out while she was at summer camp and there's a whole craze of art. No, it was Pokemon Go. She was at summer camp when it started and when it ended as a fad. And so like lots of people are nostalgic for the era of Pokemon Go and she has no connection to it whatsoever. I feel like neoliberalism snuck in while I was distracted by something else. And I don't have an organic grasp of it. Do you have a sense of like, when, when did that become a thing? About 10 years ago, I was not about 10 years ago, I was on a, con, a panel in New York and Betsy Gottbaum was on there. And she's a you know longtime liberal Democrat, Parks Commissioner. Uh, and at the end of the panel, she turns to us and goes, what the hell is neoliberal? <laughs> <laughs> what is this? I've been in politics my whole life. What does neoliberal mean? It, it's a mark. It's a term that comes out of, I think, Marxist scholarship. There's a guy, David Harvey, who I think has, has been one of the great pop, academic popularizers of term um you know it's it describes how you know think about tony blair think about the third way right right the 90s, right, right. right you know i, I think it's, it's a marxist term to describe that kind of moderate liberalism which is fine with capitalism as long as it's diverse and multicultural and, and says the right things but it's perfectly willing to keep all the structures of power in place yeah, but it comes was, out of Europe, right? I mean, that's my sense. Is that yeah, like, Harvey, I think, is British, if I'm, if I'm not correct. Yeah, it's a kind of a European Marxist term that filters its way, as usual, down here. Now it's, you know, what neocon used to be, now it's neoliberal. Um, but it is sort of useful when I use the term neoliberal. Like, you know, these, the administrators of my university are classically neoliberal. They're, um, you know, they talk a good game about social justice and all of that. But at the end of the day, they're dollars and cents and they're budget people. It, they're about, you know, sorry, you can only have a one and a half percent raise. And, you know, yes, we're going to go develop this this piece of land over here and get as much money out of it as we can. So in that sense, it's it's sort of useful to think about in there. But I, I wouldn't go much further than that. Um, yeah, but, like like but that kind of neoliberalism, I cannot stand. Right. Where it 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 rhetorically is obedient to wokeism or leftism or whatever like that but in its day in its day job it's not so it's it's a little bit like feeding the alligator one leg at a time kind of thing like at some point you have to you know this is a very charles murray point but you have to preach what you practice right and if you actually believe that like we are constrained by financial uh by finite financial resources and that we cannot be all things to all people and that maybe it's not our lane to be anti-racist. Um, you can't appease the people by saying you're these things while not being it. I mean, the hypocrisy is not the problem. The problem is the 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 the, the politics that you're kind of creating. And there's and there's similar problems on the right. You know, like stop talking to me about how you know you're this hyper nationalist person who's going to recreate the world when really all you want is to get reelected to be a senator in a democracy. Um, you know, if, if more people just said, actually just preached what they actually practice and, 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 and stuck to the roles that they have in the society, we'd all be better off and we could actually argue about what's actually going on rather than the sort of J.D. Vance or Elon Omar BS. I think it wouldn't be a discussion here if we didn't bring in Irving Crystal. But Irving, you know, one of his great insights is that capitalists and business people need to be saved from themselves. They need to be saved from themselves. 
And they think, I mean, come on, how many of these corporate honchos really believe the, the woke stuff that they, that they talk about and put on their websites? Very few, right? They're, they're bottom line oriented. They just think this is, this is what they need to do to keep their operations going and, and to stave off whatever criticism they're going to get. But yeah, they, they need to be kind of worked on to say, this is not, not going to be good for you in the long term. But the other problem is that corporations, they don't think in the long term for the most part, right? <clears throat> Very short term, short term based. And in the short term, it's jumping on whatever bandwagon social media is doing and whatever will make them look um, progressive, even if their own operate, day-to-day operations are completely self-interested and capitalistic. So yeah, so, you know, as I see that Irving's insight from the 70s, that's, that's needed today, right? Yeah. Who's going to defend capitalism? Right. Who's, if, if capitalists can't defend capitalism, who will? And that's that's a problem. Deracinated demi-Jews from the Upper West Side of Manhattan. Uh, <laughs> um, all right, Vin Canato, thank you so much uh, for coming back on. Really appreciate it. Great to have you. And um, I hope you'll come back. Yeah, it's fun, of course. All right, so Vin has left the studio. I'm actually recording this close like an hour and change later because we did a second podcast um with shadi amid immediately after i finished the one with uh vin um always great to see vin um the only thing i ever worry about when i'm talking to vin is that like we know each other so well and we've been talking to each other for so long that like sometimes we end up speaking in shorthand and um maybe we don't aren't explicating uh our answers as as best we could um but i'm just not I'm I'm not normally inclined to say expand on that thought. Um, but maybe I should do that sometimes. But Vin's one of my favorite people. Um, his books are wonderful and um you should check them out. And um it was great to have him. It's great to be back uh at in DC. I had a wonderful weekend at World Forum, um, AEI's, you know, super secret um uh, off the record enclave where we um we recalibrate the 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 space lasers and everything else so um with that thanks for listening and i'll see you next time no you won't this is a podcast